Thanks for taking the time to check out this episode of Desert Island Goals. Video links to all the goals we're going to discuss in this podcast are in the description below, as well as social media profiles for myself, the podcast itself, and our guest. Please take the time to follow us all right now. There is a good chance there will be some strong language at some point during this podcast, just letting you know that ahead of time. And please take the time right now to give us a five-star review on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Cheers. Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Desert Island Goals. I am your host, Callum Squires. Thank you very much for taking the time to check out this podcast. As always, this is the podcast where we invite a guest on to talk us through their life as a soccer fan, share with us their Desert Island goals, which they would relive or rewatch if they were stuck on a desert island and could only watch five for the rest of their life. And we will learn about them as a football fan, as a soccer fan, and uh, explain all about why these goals mean so much to them. So joining us today, as you can probably guess the nationality to an extent by the fact that I've used the word soccer already, but joining me today is a very special guest, Mr. Kyle Reno. So Kyle, thank you so much for taking the time. How hey, are you? Doing well, doing well. Happy to be here. Excited to get started on this. It's been a long time coming and that's largely my fault in terms of recording schedules and I apologize, but it's great that we've got you here. Um, Kyle and I played college soccer together, and I know that Kyle is a passionate soccer fan um, with a story that I don't think we've had on the podcast so far in terms of your your heritage and where you're from and, and the teams that you cheer for. So that's always kind of how we introduce the guests on this podcast and let people get to know you a little bit. So I guess, first and foremost, where are you from? Where is your family from? And what are your earliest memories of kind of becoming a soccer slash football fan? Yeah, so um, I'm I'm from San Antonio, Texas. Uh, that's where I basically grew up, did all my schooling. That's where you and I met, and most of the other guests on this podcast so far <laughs> met at at, a, at Trinity University. Um, so yeah, I kind of grew up in Texas, but uh, my dad is actually he's from Mexico, uh, from the land of Chivas in uh, Central Mexico, and then my mom is actually from Argentina, so she's from Buenos Aires. You know, they met in the U.S., and, and you know, I, I was born here, so. Um, that'll give you an idea of, of why I chose some of the goals later or in my list. Um, but yeah, so that's, there was really only one path with my mom being from Argentina and was, it was playing soccer growing up. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit about my heritage. Um, as far as my earliest memories, um, you know, as far as me personally playing, and I think a lot of the other guys who grew up in the U S it's obviously the, the orange peels at halftime. Um, so I was actually born in California, so that's where I started playing soccer, but yeah, my first two teams, I can't remember, we were the Purple, Purple Lightning or the Purple Dragons. Uh, no affiliation, but those were my first two teams. It just happened to be. And then as far as watching soccer, I think my first memories was really the 2006 World Cup. That's where I really started to get into it. Um, you know, I followed Liga MX a lot. And then once I started watching European soccer, I, yeah, I kind of strayed away from watching a lot of, uh, of, uh, of soccer, I guess, on this side of the pond. So, yeah, so that's a little bit of my heritage and, you know, uh and soccer history as well we're going to touch on argentina in just a second but we haven't really had much discussion on on this show about uh mexican soccer and certainly in terms of mexican domestic soccer and you just alluded there to initially being with liga mx as i say because i can't mm -hmm. get it right mm -hmm. and you know then i guess migrating towards the more european stuff why was that and what would you tell someone about mexican domestic soccer if they didn't know anything about it yeah, so I think, um, so early on, you know, we my, all, all my family lives in Mexico or Argentina. So growing up, we spent, I don't know, 
probably three, four months out of the year in Mexico. So that's all I watched. I had all the Mexican trading cards for all the players, the sticker albums and all that. So that's really why I started watching Liga MX. So my, my team is Chivas in Mexico, um, obviously one of the heralded teams other than uh, Club America, the rivalry. Um, so I think, I mean, I think the reason why I strayed away uh, or started watching European soccer is just one, it is obviously better. It's a better product and it's where all the big names are. It's what all my friends and I would talk about, right? So that's one of the reasons, the marketability. Um, but yeah, as far as uh, what I would tell someone who doesn't know much about the game, really the American, aside from uh, the US game, but basically anything from Texas South down to Argentina, it is, it feels like it's a little bit grittier game. Um, it feels like it's played with, yeah, I don't know, maybe a little more bite, a little more passion. Maybe some, some might call it a little dirtier or a little more physical or whatnot. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess that's just how I see it. Maybe less polished, but more intense, I would say. Makes a lot of sense. I think that that chimes with a lot of people's expectations, I would guess. And obviously, you just touched on the European soccer and becoming a fan of that. Were there particular clubs that stuck out to you? Because I think in our relationship, I don't know that I necessarily could name a specific club in mm -hmm. Europe, mm -hmm. beyond obviously Jesus, as you said, in, in Mexico that you were. <laughs> A big fan of and obviously with the Argentinian heritage we're going to talk about the national team in just a second but is there an Argentinian club that you have a particular affiliation to yeah sure so so my mom uh I guess like much in Europe the neighborhood you grew up in is the team you support so my mom uh was a uh, well aside from you I would say the, the exception it seems to be but uh so my mom grew up a supporter of uh San Lorenzo del Magro um that's just the the club that grew up in her neighborhood, my dad or my granddad rather is a, uh, or was an associate or a club member. Um, so I actually went to go see my first real professional soccer game was to see San Lorenzo win the Argentinian league, the clinching game. Yeah. In Argentina. So I went with my grandpa, that was in 07, I think. Um, it's also the team of the Pope. So uh, we have a little bit of uh, yeah. <laughs> higher power supporting us. Uh, Lavezzi was a was a product of that team, but as far as uh, as European soccer, my team is it's Barcelona. Um, again, like I said, 2006 was really when I started watching soccer, and that was like the start of the magic of Barcelona. So, you know, early on, it was one of my favorite players was Deco, obviously Ronaldinho, um, and then the connection with Rafa Marquez, which was the the center back for Barcelona, and then obviously Messi was the Argentinian uh, connection there. And it was just it was just a magic team. It was a great team to, you know, early on, I felt like I had to defend myself and be like, no, no, like I was a Barcelona fan, like when they had Deco, you know, like when they had uh, Rafa Marquez, not just now with Xavi Iniesta, Messi, you know, so I would say that's my team. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I think most passionate about international soccer more than club. I still follow Barcelona like they are my club. But uh, yeah, so that's, I guess, the, the teams I support around the world. The Argentinian link is obviously very present. And spoiler alert, we're going to talk a little bit about Mr. Messi later on as we go. But a conversation that we've had off mic before is about, I guess, the mentality of Argentinians mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the, the way they play the game. And certainly if you look at the top leagues in the world, they all are littered in a good way right, right. with Argentinians, to be fair. And you look, obviously, we're going to talk the 2022 World Cup as this goes on. But even this week, you've seen Enzo Fernandez make a massive move um, to Chelsea. And whether we love that or hate mm -hmm. that is another mm -hmm. discussion. Um, 
and equally, you know, even in the summer, Lissandro Martinez to Manchester United, and I've been blown away by him and adore the guy. What is it about the Argentinian spirit, I guess, that makes not the biggest nation in the world, but be so good at producing talent? And obviously, you know, the best player in the world, mm-hmm. yeah, and, yeah. Uh, potentially with Messi or Maradona, depending on mm-hmm. who you ask, you know, for, for a country like Argentina, that's that's a hell of a resume if you want to boil it down to that. So right. what do you think it is about your Argentinian heritage that is just so good at creating this level of talent? Yeah, and I've had this debate a lot with my dad, um, being a little bitter that, you know, the facilities, you know, some of these facilities at uh, Chivas or Pachuca, they have, you know, world-class facilities, scouts. Obviously, Mexico is a much bigger population than Argentina, so you would think they should be creating more stars, you know. And Argentina being a smaller nation, um, I think, you know, the facilities are not what they are in Mexico or obviously in the U.S. even. And I think it, it they just don't care what anyone thinks for the most part, you know, like obviously, you know, there are players, once they get to stardom, they start being maybe divas. Obviously you had your run-ins with Di Maria and whatnot, but when they get to a place, it doesn't matter if they're 18 years old and there's three, four guys in front of them. Like they're not phased by a lot. And I think that's part of their success. Um, So like I said, my dad gets frustrated because any person from Argentina gets to a, a European club, they pay 15 million for some random person no one's heard of. And they have a great career in Europe. And then Mexico, you have all these, you know, Gio de Santos, Carlos Vela, all these hot, hot shot names, who's supposed to be the big thing. And then for some reason, they, they fade, or I don't know, maybe they, they just can't compete, or they just don't have the right mentality, I guess, is what is what we've kind of discussed. Um, but I think it's in all facets of the Argentinian spirit, because obviously, you know, the team I really, when we're talking about club teams that I, you know, support and back is really San Antonio Spurs of the yeah, NBA. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously one of our best players is Manu Ginobili, right? So how does this guy from South America, nowhere, become a four-time NBA champion, all this stuff, right? Because he didn't care. And you saw how he played with flair and all this other stuff because he, he, he wasn't scared to. And he made a lot of mistakes and he had his big run-ins with Popovich for, you know, giving the ball away in key situations. But I think it's, I don't know, there's something about there. I think there's an arrogance, there's a cockiness, definitely. And uh, it's you know, if you ask other Latin American countries, they'll tell you that like Argentinians can be very, yeah, very arrogant, very <laughs> like very a little bit nose stuck up in the air. Um, but I think that's contributed to their success in Europe because they go anywhere, they don't care, and they just they just play hard, right? Um, so yeah, that that's what I would say about the the Argentinian spirit and and why that's led to their success. Um, yeah, in Europe. I'm amazed that we went over the five-minute mark before we got the first San Antonio Spurs reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, I know. That's great because that, that's an important part of your identity. And, you know, the, the more we can talk about the way other sports interlink with, with football and with soccer, the better. And, you know, mm-hmm. you saw, what was it, the 2018 World Cup? Gareth Southgate was accrediting all of England's successes on corners down to watching out-of-bounds plays in the NBA and learning, you know, how people get open. So right, right. There, there's always parallels between the two sports, for sure. Um We'll get onto kind of the process and, and the goals themselves now. One thing about your list that is interesting, as opposed to most of the other guests we've had so far, is there is a heavy focus on international football in mm-hmm. Carl's list, mm-hmm. which is a spoiler, but you're going to understand it as we go. And that I think a lot of other people have come on the show and had one or, or maybe two, but certainly not the majority of their goals being international football. Is that something that you feel like the international game is generally at a higher level? Or was there just was there a particular reason why your list skewed that way? And in terms of making the list, 
how hard was it to kind of trim down to five goals? Because you've watched a lot of goals in your life. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, as far as international soccer, you know, when we're talking about the five best goals, or, that, or rather that I would watch for the rest of my life, I think just the World Cup is really, I think, the best tournament, the best sports tournament in in the world, right? So I think a lot of the the reason I picked a lot of World Cup goals was just because there was so much one memories and magic behind them because every goal means a lot. You know, obviously, if your team wins the Champions League, you're going to remember that goal. But the Champions League is every year. Yeah. You know, La Liga is every year. The Premier League is every year. Um, the players come and go. Whoever gives them the bigger paycheck, and, and it's not a knock on it. It's just it is what it is. You know, and I, I watch. I love watching the Premier League. Um, La Liga when I can, uh, but I think there's just more magic and every goal is just that much heavier. It weighs a lot more in the international game. Um, so yeah, I think that's why I, I skew towards international. Also, a lot of the games, you know, league games, Champions Leagues, they're like during the school year, to be honest, right? Yeah. And so when it's World Cup or Copa America or Euro Cup, most of the ones I've watched in my life, I mean, I just got out of school really a couple of years ago, were during the summer break. So I could watch everything all the time. It's all anyone's talking about. Um, you know, you go to soccer camps, it's all anyone's talking about, right? So there's just a lot more focus on it. Um, aside from the fact that there's just, it's it's just the best tournament in the world. Um, maybe not talent wise, obviously, because you just have to pull from what you have in your country. But as, as far as passion and magic, I don't think, I don't think you can parallel. I don't, I don't think there's an equal rather. And then in choosing the five goals, was that a difficult process for you? Or did they kind of immediately leap out at you in terms of which ones you had to have? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think uh, I think when you invited me on or, or, you know, let me know, I think I had three or four that came straight to mind just because I it, it's what came to me. Right. Um, you know, I started looking around and saying, man, am I missing anything? But I mean, it, it, it's the ones that are top of mind for me. So there are some that I would have liked to include. Um, for example, I, I love free kicks. I think it's I think all free kicks or I mean, great free kicks are about as pure a goal as you can get. There's no variables, deflections, luck, and whatnot. It's did the player, you know, put it in the corner he wanted to. Obviously, yes, you can get some deflections and stuff, but less improvisation and more just pure skill, I would say. So I love free kicks, uh, but none of those got into my list uh, just because these other five just meant more at the time. Zidane, on the last occasion he took a penalty, whacked it hard to the goalkeeper's right. And if you remember, the Portuguese goalkeeper, Ricardo, got a hand to it. It's Zinedine Zidane here. Oh, it crossed the line, it's a goal. But how lucky almost is that? How casual, how cheeky. Only one of the world's great, great players would attempt anything as audacious as that, but he nearly paid the penalty if he excused the pun. Okay, goal number one for Kyle. And as I said in the introduction, immediately... We're into international football and one of the biggest games ever, certainly in terms of how a couple of people in this game are viewed legacy-wise, shall we say. So this is July of 2006, the Olympiastadion in Berlin, and this is the 2006 World Cup final between Italy and France. Obviously, Kyle, you already said that this tournament was, I guess, formative in your soccer fandom and one of your earliest memories. But there's a lot about this game that's very interesting in a number of different ways. And the goal Kyle's chosen, I'm fascinated to hear the story behind why it has to be on his list. So this game is Italy 1, France 1 after extra time. 
and France end up losing 5-3 to Italy on penalties in the penalty shootout. The Italians walk away world champions and the immortal image of Fabio Cannavaro lifting the World Cup and celebrating with the Italian fans is one that will live on forever in Italy. But that's not how the game started. And the goal that Kyle has chosen is the goal that gave France the lead after just seven minutes, Zinedine Zidane's Panenka penalty. And there's a number of layers to this. Um, Before we circle back to the goal itself, we should just say that Marco Matarazzi equalized after 19 minutes, and that is how the score remained all the way up until the penalty shootout. But perhaps the most infamous moment of the entire game was Zidane's red card in extra time with about 10 minutes to go that meant he couldn't take one of the penalties in the shootout. David Trezeguet missed his. Italy scored all five of theirs, including the final one from Fabio Grosso, hero of the semi-final as well. (laughs) And Italy walked away world champions. Kyle, obviously you spoke about this tournament and what it meant to you as, as a young fan. But I was admittedly very intrigued to hear your reasoning behind this player, this team, this goal and this game. Because obviously in the grand scheme of the entire game, he ends up on the losing side. And yet, this is still one that you want to relive and, you know, I guess take us through that reasoning and why this goal means so much to you. Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned it. It is the first tournament I remember watching. Um, you know, and at the time, I remember I was in Mexico and we watched the game. And then at halftime, you know, me and my cousins were out and, you know, trying to recreate the chip, right? Um, you know, as far as the goal itself, I think a, a Panenka is just the cheekiest way to score. Um, you, you know, I think it's hard maybe to understand if you don't watch soccer, what a level of disrespect and cheek and, because <laughs> obviously, right, the, the, the keeper can just stand there and, and just collect it, right? And you've seen, um, and you've seen yeah, yeah, exactly, at Chicharito most recently <laughs> in the yeah, in MLS. But um, so as far as the goal itself, a, a, a Panenka is just, it's just always cheeky, but to do it in a World Cup final against the best goalie in the world at the time, and Gianluigi Buffon, I, I don't know. It's it's just ingrained in my mind as as it, it just it just shows you the confidence of Zidane at that time. You know, unfortunately, I didn't get to see much of him. I I think I mean my only memories of him are really this game and then YouTube clips from his career prior. Um, but yeah, the, the goal itself I think is just I don't know, just the incredible confidence of Zidane to do that on literally on the biggest stage. Um, and, you know, when I was going back preparing for this, I thought it was a more meaningful goal. Obviously, it was the 1-0. I didn't know it was at seven minutes. And Matarazzi actually gives up the penalty. So they were trading <laughs> they're trading blows all game. He gives up the penalty, he scores, and then obviously the, the headbutt. Um, but, yeah, and then beyond that, it, it marks the game, one of the most, the craziest games ever, right? The headbutt that went around the world. Um, so, yeah, that, that's my reason for picking this is just – the cheek, the confidence from Zidane, and then everything that ensued after. It's just a memory of that crazy, memorable game and the headbutt heard around the world. And I think what's interesting is your ability to be able to compartmentalize the two. Because I know plenty of French people who idolize Zidane, but struggle when thinking about this goal. And maybe they have a little bit more of a personal affinity Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm, the game in itself, obviously. But the Zidane headbutt that arguably costs France the final because he can't take one of the penalty shootout penalties um, is is a very interesting juxtaposition. And I think it's funny that on the grand scheme of things, it hasn't really damaged his legacy with France, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. 
um, especially you know the hero of the '98 World Cup and, and and so on and so forth. But it's 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 a it's a massively interesting game in football history, and just the concept that you would see someone headbutt someone in the chest on a soccer field is not a common insane. occurrence, right? Yeah, so insane. especially in a game that has you know that much importance and magnitude, it's 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 wild to see. Really, I want to specifically talk about the Penenka and Penenka Ing as a as an art form, I guess, and. I like what you said about, you know, cheekiness and, and disrespect, shall we say. The only other person who's really come on this podcast and spoken about disrespect is Chris Maddock in an earlier episode, which <laughs> yeah, I know one yeah, yeah. you based on being friends with him. Uh-huh. Um, but I do think the the idea of disrespect as a form of skill or showboating, shall we say, it is interesting in the soccer realm. And, you know, recently you've had uh, players like Anthony at Manchester mm-hmm, United mm-hmm. criticised for his spin that various people have had their takes on um so you know as a fan and as a player is that something that you enjoy within the game and you know if someone was being disrespectful towards you when you're playing how would that affect you and equally was that something that you wanted necessarily to kind of go out and do to other people for a personal mm-hmm. victory within the game and is that is that part of i guess your your spirit as a player yeah, I, I would say probably not. I think anyone who knows me would say probably not. I wouldn't, you know, say I'm a disrespectful player. Um, you know, and it's funny that you put Anthony on the same level as uh, Zidane oh, as far as disrespect. Yeah. But, you know, the difference, I, I mean, I think with Zidane, it wasn't, I mean, it was, I don't know that it was so much disrespect as it was just his confidence yeah. and wanting to put on a show. Um, you know, the other one that comes to mind, and unfortunately, you know, we can't shoot shootout penalties was Pirlo's uh, Joe Hart yeah. Penenka. Hart. See, that one I think is very disrespectful because he, you know, the softest chip ever and basically almost walks over Joe Hart, like strolls all the way into the six yard box. Um, so, no, I mean, I, again, I wouldn't say it's part of my game. And I think there's a there's a level to it. I think once it's I think there's a line between supreme confidence and then disrespect or outrightly trying to disrespect your opponent. Right. And in this case, I don't think Zidane was trying to disrespect Italy. I think he was just the most confident man in the world at that time to be taking that penalty. So, The thing I have with this goal is I hate the fact that it bounces back out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does that bother you? And, and I, I don't ask that to question your decisions. This is your goals and it should absolutely be sure, your, sure. your list. I, I love the fact that it hits the bar. But I wish it had hit the bar, hit the ground, and bounced up into the roof of the net, as opposed to out. Mm-hmm. Like obviously, we can see it was clearly over the line. Right, right. No right. drama about that whatsoever. There's something about the aesthetics of it for some reason. I think maybe because in the moment, as a kid, you know, however old I was, twelve or whatever, I think I, I was kind of, well, that didn't go in, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. obviously it did when you see the replay. But w- was there any part of you that aesthetically would prefer it if it stayed in the net? Is that silly? Yeah. That silly? No, no, no. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I think when you watch the clip back. Uh, I think Zidane himself, he does it very confidently, one. But when he sees it bounce out, he's kind of like, no, wait, no, that, that did go in, right, right, right? <laughs> and so it takes away from his very cool demeanor of chipping someone in the World Cup final. Because he does have a little moment of like, wait, are they going to count this? You see him walk away and then kind of like, wait. He has to appeal for it. Right? Yeah, he has, it, like, there's just like a little pause. And, you know, he walks off, doesn't even yell, like just strolls off. But there is a little moment of, of I wouldn't say panic, but, uh, you know, where he says, oh, I don't know, because this is obviously before uh, the goal line technology, yeah. right? So if the if the referee blinked, who knows if that gets counted? 
And just, I guess, kind of furthermore onto what you said earlier, you know, being a, a Barcelona fan, you know, shall we say, and Zidane, obviously a, a Real Madrid legend. Um, is he someone as a player that you idolise? I mean, I know you said you didn't get to see too much of him mm-hmm. historically, and, you know, that that makes sense in terms of the era um, that you were born and grew up with in, in terms of European soccer. But is he someone that you kind of have gone back and adored from, from a past perspective? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean... As far as watching clips back, I mean, he's definitely up there. That has probably one of the craziest highlight reels to watch. Just his touch, vision, passing. But, but I mean, basically everything. There's nothing you can't say about him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's no – and you'll see later in the list. There's no, I guess, bad blood from him being a, a Real Madrid uh, a Real Madrid player and then obviously manager later. Um, you, you just got to appreciate that he's he was one of the best to do it. And who knows if he would have been higher up the all-time list if he has two World Cups. You know, so pretty crazy. It does change his legacy potentially. And very lastly, just in terms of the actual kind of, I guess, history at the moment, what was your take on, on the headbutt in the moment that it happened and and your thoughts on the aftermath of all of that? I mean, so again, I was in Mexico, right? So they were, all the media was a little more in tune than if I would have been in the US. Uh, so the, you know, the late night shows, the replays, there was like, I think a video game or like a little phone app where you would headbutt, you'd try to headbutt Matt Terazzi <laughs> over and over and over again. So I, I, I don't know, like, I, I don't think I really remember what happened in the moment, but the aftermath, it being everywhere. I think Matt Terazzi said something about his mom is what Zidane said or his sister. I don't know. Um, but just one of the craziest moments to ever happen on a, on a soccer field ever. Right. But yeah, the video games, the talk show host. Oh my god, it was it was insane. And who knows how that would have been now in the age of social media? It would have been the most insane thing ever. Daily Blint. Van Persie with an early run. He's onside this time. It's one-one. Okay, goal number two for Kyle. And we're fasting forward about eight years, but we're still at the World Cup. And the 2014 World Cup is one that we have spoken about on this podcast before, but largely relating to the infamous semi final mm. uh, between Germany and Brazil. We're not going to talk about this one, but we are going to talk about maybe the second most one sided game in that tournament and potentially a very surprising one based on the two teams that were involved and how it ended up. I don't think anyone would have predicted this scoreline before the game actually started. And this is Spain 1, the Netherlands 5 from Group B in the group stage. Should be said that Spain took the lead after 27 minutes through a Xabi Alonso penalty before the Netherlands took control and scored five goals in the space of 36 minutes to completely destroy Spain and, you know, move themselves on to a stage where the Netherlands ended up in the semi-finals, correct? Mm-hmm. Semi-finals. So, the goal that we're talking about is probably the most famous one from this game, and it is the equaliser. Robin <laughs> Van Persie's flying header, but we should say that was one of two goals he scored on the day, as well as a brace from Arjen Robin and one from Stefan de Vrij, as the Netherlands eventually ran out, you know, comfortable winners over a Spain team. I'll just run you through this lineup because this is no, this is not a bad Spain team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
with Casillas in goal, Azpilicueta, PK, Ramos, and Alba as a back four, Busquets, Xavi, David Silva, Iniesta, and Xavi Alonso as a five-man midfield, and Diego Costa up front. It's a ridiculous Spain lineup um, with players like Torres, Fabregas, Pedro, De Gea, Mata, and David Villa on the bench. And yet the Netherlands took them apart. This is one of Louis van Gaal's all-time masterpieces from my point of view. And maybe Van Gaal is someone we should speak about <laughs> a little bit later on after the most mm-hmm. recent World Cup. But we have to talk about the goal that Kyle has chosen, which is Robin van Persie's flying header to equalize after 44 minutes. It's a long diagonal from Daily Blind over the back of the Spain line. And who's running through with his arm in the air but Robin van Persie, at the time, Manchester United striker, Leaping diving header. I think one of it almost felt like one of the earlier quote unquote viral moments. Mm-hmm. You know, not that social media was brand new in 2014, it had been right. around, but I certainly remember <laughs> everywhere you turn, be it Twitter or anything else, the image of Van Persie flying through the hair, the air and heading it over Casillas was everywhere. Mm-hmm. I, I remember it vividly. So, Kyle, talk me through your memories of this game. Where were you watching? And why did this goal have to be under Desert Island Gosses? Yeah, so this is, yeah, what is it? Summer of 2014. So I think that summer I'm actually in Argentina visiting family. Um, so I'm actually there when Argentina loses the final to uh, Germany later in this in this World Cup. Uh, but yeah, for me, I think, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure this goal gets talked about enough. I think uh-huh. it gets talked about a lot, but I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm not a pure striker. Maybe that's easier for, you know, people like you or you know, pure natural born strikers. Right. But I don't know, to me, the ball, the, I mean, on top of everything, what other goal has its own name? You know, the flying Dutchman, other than, you know, the goal of the century, Maradona, England. Right. But uh, we'll talk about that later. But, uh, you know, the, to me, it's just, it's just an insane goal. It's, it's pleasing to watch, you know, just face value. And then on top of that, the fact that it's, you know, justice or revenge rather from the 2010 world cup between these two teams. Um, you know, Netherlands goes on to the semifinal, losing to Argentina as well. Yeah, to get that. I have to, have to mention <laughs> that. But, um, you know, they avoid the, the finalist curse. But uh, to me, it's just, again, just one of the, the most skilled and to me, honestly, the hardest goal I've seen actually be able to score, you know, like most difficult goal to score. Um, I was a little disappointed it doesn't win goal of the tournament, to be honest. The, the technique is, is remarkable, really. And I find it so interesting because Blind receives it literally on the halfway line. Mm-hmm. Van Persie is still a couple yards behind Sergio Ramos, who he eventually runs off the back of the, to, to get the goal and with the header. But when Blind looks up, Van Persie puts his arm in the air. But you've got, a, I mean, it's a good pass, mm-hmm. David Blind, first and foremost. It's, it's a hell of a diagonal ball. But you've also got to kind of wonder what exactly, I guess, Van Persie was thinking would happen. I'm pretty sure it wasn't what actually happened. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he's hoping that maybe Blind is just going to play one that he can chest down and volley like we've seen him do before. But you see him kind of making his mind up when he's on the edge of the D and realizing that he's not really going to be able to control this ball and instead goes for a header. And the the most funny thing about the header for me is that he basically heads it from underneath the ball. Yeah, right, right. And you don't don't often see people head the ball up because normally, as you're taught, as as a technique, it's all about head the ball down. It's certainly in an attacking sense. Mm-hmm. Obviously defensive. Right, right. Head it away as high as you can, whatever. But it's almost like a defensive header that he's used to score a goal, which I think you're right, is something that you just don't see very often at all. Mm-hmm. 
I I love the image of him kind of laid out and the way Casillas basically just looks up and hopes with him only about three or four yards off his line, but it just loops over him. And, you know, I just think the technique from Van Persie here is immaculate. Really. It's unreal. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, you know, in the NFL, you talk a lot about wide receivers being able to find the ball in the air. Uh, you know, similar here, it's a 50 yard pass, right? From blend, the run, the timing. Uh, and I don't know, maybe he has time to bring it down. We've seen him score over the head, you know, normal volleys, right? I don't know. It's just the most, cre it's creative. It's against the best keeper in the world at that time. Um, Casillas, right in 2014, probably. Um, so yeah, I don't know. To me, it's just, it's just a great goal overall. And just the idea, the, again, like I said with Zidane, the confidence to even try something like that. I don't know. It's, yeah, unbelievable. Just very quickly on Robert Van Berthy as a player, your your overall thoughts on him and, and his career, because obviously, you know, I think a lot of my friends have mm. certain influence views based on being United or Arsenal or whatever, but as a quote-unquote impartial observer, what did you feel about Robert Van Persie, the player? Yeah, I mean, talking about YouTube mixtapes, I don't I don't think Van Persie, I, I mean, he's second to none, right? You can make the argument. Uh, obviously, some other players maybe have a greater catalogue, but it seemed like every goal was just... Un unbelievable right unbelievable technique you have the flying dutchman i don't know how many he has of those overhead volleys where he tracks it over his shoulder a few yeah a few um yeah i guess the only bad thing i can say is is you know when he came in it was chicharito out a little bit right more or less so uh, but no great player great to watch um and again just unreal mixtape for a career Cristiano Ronaldo, ritmo altísimo en esta segunda mitad. Se mete en el área Cristiano, mete la puntera, deja para Cross el golpe. Bueno. Pase hacia atrás de Cristiano Ronaldo, apareciendo en carrera Tony Cross, presentó el interior de la bota para golpear la pelota y ajustarla al poste izquierdo de la portería del Rayo Vallecano. Marca el Madrid, enorme golpeo de balón de Tony Cross en el Bernabéu, Madrid 3, Rayo Vallecano 1. All right, goal number three for Kyle, and this one is an interesting one, a little bit of an outlier. It's our first foray into domestic football, shall we say. And based on Kyle's introduction, there may be some confusion over why this goal makes this list, but we'll talk through it. This is La Liga in 2014, and it's Real Madrid 5, Rayo Vallecano 1. This is a peak Real Madrid team that either won the Champions League this year or the next year. I'm sure Dalen mm -hmm. Gordon will tell me when I'm, yeah, yeah. When I'm wrong about this. Um, but... It's a peak Real Madrid team, as exhibited by the fact that their goal scorers are all superstars of international world football. Gareth Bale gave Real Madrid the lead after nine minutes. Sergio Ramos made it 2-0 after 40. Alberto Bueno got one back for Rayo Vallecano right on the stroke of halftime. Tony Kroos made it 3-1 after 55 minutes. Karim Benzema, 4-1 on the hour. And Cristiano Ronaldo, who else, scored for Real Madrid with about 10 minutes to go as well. But the goal that we're talking about is the third for Real Madrid, and it is the first goal for Real Madrid for a very talented German midfielder, Tony Kroos. Kyle, we'll talk about the goal in a second, um, and it's a great finish in and of itself. But obviously there may be some confusion in terms of saying Barcelona, your mm -hmm. team, and having a, a Real Madrid goal on this list. 
what was it about this goal that kind of overrides said rivalry and what are your feelings when when i say the name tony cross yeah no i mean so my first two goals international stage great goals right this one i i honestly don't remember where i watched it i just remember watching it um and for me it's just it's just one of the most aesthetically pleasing goals to watch um yeah i you know out of all the goals everyone will probably know the other four but go look at this one and you'll know what i'm talking about uh you know i i grew up you know i played in center midfield or i'd like to play in center midfield <laughs> and uh anyone who plays in center midfield or feels they should you know, you want to be a Kroos, a Modric, uh, Iniesta, um, Pirlo even. Pirlo was one of my favorite players. You want to be kind of this maestro midfielder. Obviously, there's a place for the workhorse and whatnot and needed. Um, but to me, that's what Tony Kroos was, just supreme quality, great technique, a maestro, you know, managed the game with him and Modric and obviously Casemiro. Uh, it's just a great midfield trio that is is worth appreciating no matter, you know, what where you lie in the rivalry so that makes a lot of sense uh, and the goal itself um if we if we take a look at it here the break comes forward um to cristiano ronaldo on the right wing for once mm -hmm, for a mm -hmm. rather than through the middle um but ronaldo kind of pokes it back to about 25 yards out and cross steps onto it inside of the foot and i don't think there's ever been a more accurate definition of passes the ball into the net this is not a shot per se. This is not laces. This is pure side foot. This is accuracy combined with just the right level of curve and pace on the ball. Mm -hmm. And there's an angle that we're, we're going to watch here as we do this from behind the goal. And you can see that when Kroos hits it, it starts way outside the, the post. And at the very last moment, curls back in past the despairing dive of Christian Alvarez in the via, in the Viacano goal. And it's just a remarkable finish, really, from Kroos. And he, to get that bend on it, it's all the way along the floor, basically. Right. Slightly bounces up when he first hits it. And then from there on out, it's just along the floor and into the bottom left corner of the goalkeeper's goal. And just what a finish. It's just a great finish, yeah. Yeah, sure, it was 3-1. It ends up being 5-1. But it's just, yeah, the angle from the back, seeing the curl, I mean... Like I said, it's just great to watch. Not a lot of history behind it. Not a big story behind it. It's just, it's just a good one to watch. The the technique on it, I'm assuming, is kind of to an extent what makes it a goal for your list. Mm -hmm. And is that something that you you pride in your central midfielders? Is is having that level of of technique and excellence to be able to do a finish like this? Because there are plenty of players out there who are fantastic players, but could never hope to match Tony Cross in terms of execution. Yeah, right. I mean, like I said. Uh, I, I just like the the maestro uh, floor general, as you say in the NBA, right? <laughs> like that guy who can just take control of the game, um, the Modric, Pirlo, and and make it look effortless. That's the other thing, right? Because there's a lot of good players, great technique, who are working really hard, but these guys look like they don't break a sweat. So yeah, yeah. So it's definitely something I I, I like watching on the field. And you were talking about the midfield here, and I think technically in this game for uh, for Real Madrid, it was a midfield of of Modric and Kroos. Uh, starting with with James Rodriguez, mm -hmm. who we've also you know we've now mentioned for the second time on this podcast, um, but really the the Kroos, Modric, Casemiro midfield is kind of what Real Madrid used to win the multiple Champions Leagues in the, in the last five years or so. Right. Talk to me about that midfield mm -hmm. and, and and your kind of feelings of, of of how good that was as a group. Yeah, I mean, I think they they complemented each other really well. 
Modric obviously goes on to win the Ballon d'Or, World Cup final. Is re- I guess he's really the the floor general. I guess the maestro, you know, putting the balls in and all that. Um, Casemiro maybe obviously in the defensive role, he's doing really well for Man U. Uh, it was just a great balance between the three. Um, you know, I think second only to Xavi and Yesta Busquets, obviously, right? But uh, it's it's just a good midfield trio, fun to watch, and and again, each each player was different. And they complement each other well, and obviously was was one of the big reasons for their success. I feel I'd be remiss if we didn't just briefly talk about Croce's probably most famous goal that I can think of, um, which was in the group stage of the World Cup for Germany, the last minute winner, the free mm-hmm. kick mm-hmm. again uh, against Korea, Sweden? I think. Korea, one of the two. I'm gonna have to check that as I yeah. Um, but I, you know, I I remember that being remarkable and basically yeah, oh Sweden, yeah, Sweden. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and and. You know the t- the technique that Kroos shows so often, remarkable to be fair, and mm-hmm. he's just that kind of level of player. And I wonder if he's maybe not as beloved worldwide as he should be. Right. I think you know, yeah, like you said, he's he's obviously very talented and technical, but he's not necessarily the most flashy of players. Right. Certainly in comparison with Zidane, who we spoke about earlier, different kind of centre midfielders. But I remember before he went to Real Madrid, I was begging United to go get him, and you know, I just think he's had an unbelievable career and, you know, perhaps is a little bit underrated. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, after that World Cup, uh, when he went to Real Madrid, uh, you know, I told some of my friends at the time, I was like, I feel like he's a Barcelona player. You know, he kind of, I feel like he fits the mold. Obviously, he's having a great career at Real Madrid, but yeah, maybe under underrated, under, or rather, maybe not underrated, but under the radar. You know, if you ask someone about Tony Kroos, they're going to tell you he's great, but it's just not the first player who's going to come to mind. Well, it's real and Riley still going. Look at this, Kevin. It's a brilliant run from Messi. Going to go all the way! It's one of the great Copa del Rey final goals from the magical Mercurial. Lionel Messi lights up the Camp Nou one more time. All right. Goal number four for Kyle, and bafflingly, I think this is the first time this has been selected as a desired mm-hmm. goal on, on this show, which is surprising in episode 25, I think this is. People will know this goal, and if, you know, if you're a fan of this player, which most people who listen to this podcast, I assume are, you will know what, we talk, what we're talking about as soon as I, you may even know it from the commentary you've just heard before this, but as soon as we start talking about it, this is the Copa del Rey final. May of 2015, that finishes Athletic Bilbao 1, Barcelona 3. So this is Barcelona's first and only appearance on Carl's Desert Island goal list. But what a goal it is. And the goal that we're talking about is the goal that makes it 1-0 in this game. As I said, eventually Barcelona run out 3-1 winners. Iñaki Williams scores a late consolation for Athletic Club after Neymar and a brace from Lionel Messi have put the outcome of the game well beyond question. And in the 20th minute, Messi scores one of the best goals of his career, mm-hmm. which is saying a lot, right, considering right. not just how many goals he's scored, but the caliber and the quality of so many of them. And we've had his name mentioned on a number of episodes here. I feel like maybe we should have his name mentioned on every single one, if we're completely honest, because he is just that special of a player. And I do think once he's retired, similar a little bit to Tom Brady in the NFL right now, I think he will be revered even higher than he currently is once he eventually hangs up his boots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
But this goal, Danny Alves plays it to Messi on the left wing, kind of shimmies and shakes, and then decides to go for a little run. Sorry, down the right wing, excuse me. He then somehow gets past three different players, beats another one for fun, cuts inside on his left, and deposits a shot into the bottom right-hand corner of Iago Herrerin's goal. And to be fair, the description I just told you about is borderline disrespectful in terms of describing the goal mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. he's beaten five or six men there and I have no, nowhere near justice in terms of explaining just how skillful this goal is. We're going to talk about the man in a second because I know that's important to you <laughs> and to Argentinians worldwide. But the goal itself, were you watching this live or is this just something that is just so technically incredible that you felt you just had to include it on the Desire Goals list? Yeah, no, I was watching this live actually. I remember I was just watching it on the couch at my house. Um, you know, Copa del Rey, Barcelona, Bilbao, probably a routine win. This was at, you know, the height of MSN uh, winning. I think they won the Champions League this year as well. Um, so, yeah, I was just watching, you know, hoping to watch a good game. Uh, and then, you know, Messi just jaw-dropping goal here. It was, you know, you never know what to expect. But, yeah, like I said, I was just watching on the couch and, and see this moment of brilliance from him, one of his all-time best goals. Don't get me wrong. It's a final, so obviously mm-hmm. people are going to be excited. But the thing that I think tells you all about this goal is the reaction of the other Barcelona players. Messi is so good that generally he's fairly understated in a lot of his celebrations. You know, you see him passionate and so on, but he does things that no one else can do and walks away like, yeah, because of course I did that. Mm-hmm. But every single Barcelona player goes absolutely nuts when this hits the net. If you look at the midfielders, when you watch this video, if you look at the midfielders and the defenders, everyone reacts, arms outstretched, and flies to try and chase him down. Now, again, cup final, I get it. Big goal, you're trying to win a trophy. But when your fellow professionals are reacting like this, you have to know that it's a piece of magic. Yeah, no, of course. Of course, you know, and at some point, you know, I would have loved to be a a left back for Barcelona with Messi (laughs) on the right wing. So I could watch most of his goals, right? Because he usually starts on the right wing and, and cuts in. So as a left back, you, you see the whole picture. You get to see it all develop. But yeah, I mean, at some point, you just got to put your, you know, just let him do him, right? He'll figure something out. Um, so yeah, I think that's, yeah, another reason why it's a great goal is, you know, all the guys, even seeing him in training all the time, knowing that this was even more special than, than a typical baseline messy goal. And what's, what's kind of remarkable about it is that he's obviously incredibly skillful and beats so many players on route to goal here. But I wouldn't say that he necessarily like does a skill, shall mm-hmm. we say? Mm-hmm. It's not it's not stepovers, it's not spins, it's direct pacey running, right? And at this time, you know, he was by far and away the best player in the world. You know, we can have your Messi Ronaldo arguments, whatever. We won't have those arguments. But he was so direct and just simply a force of nature. He was just unstoppable. And I, I love the fact that with pure attacking direct pace he's just able to bamboozle an entire defense Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and i think you know that's one of the things that makes him great obviously finishing is great but the body control in this goal you might say he gets lucky he like taps it through the two or the three and and gets it on the other side and yeah maybe that's not what his intent but he has such good body control um and the stopping and going stopping going the little chop onto the outside of his left foot that gets him past most defenders, his one move. You know, it's kind of like the LeBron stare at the ball for the three thing that everyone <laughs> memes. Messi's only move is, is stop, go, stop, go for the most part. And you see that here on full display is just being able to stop on a dime and, and turn defenders around. 
We're going to talk a little bit more about him with Carl's fifth goal, because spoiler alert, that comes from the most recent 2022 World Cup, as you mm. probably won't be surprised to hear with Carl's Argentinian connections. But Messi, the man, the player, away from this goal, just as an entity, I guess. It's not often that I get to talk to that many Argentinians in my daily life. It, are you able to quantify what he means to Argentina, to Argentinians, to Argentine society? Is that is it an overstatement to, to say that he's <laughs> arguably, you know, the proudest or you know, greatest Argentinian who's ever lived? I don't know. I don't know if that's is that overstating the line of how important you know soccer sure, is in our sure. society, but you know, he he is <clears throat> I, I don't feel bad using the word, he is worshipped. Mm -hmm. like he is worshipped like a god because of what he's been able to do and the success that he's had. Yeah, and you know, I think it's tricky because I think before he won the Copa America uh, during COVID, mm -hmm. his first international trophy, right? Before that, I don't think we'd be having this conversation because everyone in Argentina would would tell you, nah, he's not Maradona. He's not Argentinian. He grew up in Spain. He doesn't care. <laughs> he doesn't bleed for the shirt, right? He doesn't die for the shirt. You know, even my great aunt who barely watches soccer would say, uh, like I would, I you know, I talked to her here and there and and before Copa America and obviously before the World Cup, yeah, he's, he's just never going to be Maradona. It was always, you're never going to be Maradona. They don't feel he's Argentinian because he's, like I said before, that Argentines are usually very arrogant, loud, maybe not loud, but arrogant for sure. He's, you know, humble, hardly says a word. So it doesn't fit the mold at all. So I think, um, I think now, yes, it is hard to quantify how much he means. Um, you know, we'll talk about it with the World Cup, but especially now, you know, the country's, it's going through tough times. Uh, and so the, the victory in the World Cup and, and having Messi as, an, as a true idol and a real role model, right? Because Maradona, great player, but as far as role model, obviously not the best. But Messi, just stand-up citizen. Different. Yeah, different, different. Um, so yeah, now, you know, 1A and 1B between him and Maradona as, as the most important figures in, in Argentina. I guess we kind of touched on it earlier in terms of your affinity to Barcelona maybe somewhat outdating him, but feeling that connection with with someone like Messi who was having the success and obviously has the Argentinian background. That's got to have been important for you as a fan. And has Messi always been, you know, I guess your favorite player or, you know, the one that you cheer for the most? And and I'm assuming, I'm putting words in your mouth here, but I'm assuming here that you you now view him as the greatest player of all time. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Um, yeah, he's always been, I, I like to root for the guy because he's a great person and obviously Argentinian. And then just an incredible soccer player right so there's there's two parts to it um yeah favorite player definitely uh i guess the guy i admire the most you know i like i, I would say honestly random one but andrew pirlo is probably my favorite player i just love the way he yeah. plays yeah but it's like there's messi and then then my favorite player you know what i mean like he obviously uh overshadows anyone else i i enjoy watching i mean he's, he's a transcendent talent mm -hmm. by far and I think anybody who tries to deny or slight him is a clown, to put mm -hmm. it politely. He's just he's just an absolutely incredible talent for very obvious reasons. But as before we move on to, to your to your fifth and final goal, and we'll talk a little bit more about him and maybe the, the national team, the successes that he's had with Barcelona, and not just the successes, but the way he's had success, I think is what's going to set him apart from so many people throughout the history of soccer as the game and society continues to grow. The way he plays, do you think that's down to, 
I guess partly his Argentine heritage. Do you think that's Barcelona's responsibility? And you know, is it is it fair to claim that without the Argentinian heritage, Messi wouldn't be the player that he is? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So obviously, he grew up you know, from eleven years old in Barcelona in the Barcelona system. Um, I think you know we've talked about Pep and whether he's a good manager or not, but I think he's the one who really brought out the most in Messi. Uh, you know, the false nine, bringing him from the wing and things like that. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's tough to say. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, the Argentinian still have a quiet confidence no matter what, because he's been up and down. Obviously, he's been criticized a lot, especially by the Argentinian media for not being able to win. And that ability to be like, I don't really care. I, I'm here to play soccer, right? That's the only thing he cares about. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that uh, mindset has was ingrained obviously when he's still living in Argentina and has helped them succeed. Um, but also I can't deny the fact that La Masia and Barcelona is really what made him the player he was. But I mean, the dribbling and all that is not La Masia. La Masia is Tiki Taka, right? So yeah, I think the combination of the two has been the greatest combination probably in, in soccer history. Lastly, before we move on, I, I asked this question to the Luke Stranton on a previous episode. And during the World Cup, has just gone by, you know, I was in America for the majority of it. And a lot of people who maybe weren't soccer fans would ask me, so what's the deal with this Messi guy? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. people understood the storyline was potentially there, last tournament potentially, one of the greatest of all time or so on and so forth. But if you met a stranger out on the street and they said, you know, I'm trying to get into soccer, what's, what's the deal with this Messi guy? What, what would you tell a stranger about Lionel Messi and his place in the football world? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, I've talked a lot about, you know, mixtapes, who has the best highlight reels. And I think uh, first I would say just YouTube them and you'll know what I mean. I think even if you don't watch it, you can appreciate skipping past five, six people, you know, putting free kicks in the corner and all that. Um, you know, it's, yeah, what I would tell someone is in a game now, in, in the sports world that is so dominated by sports science, speed, strength, obviously in America, we hear a lot of that. Uh, that's all that matters, speed, strength, whatever. A guy who's five, six, you know, 150 pounds, dripping wet, is the greatest player ever to watch. And you, I think you can appreciate him slipping in and out of players and, and being able to do a, a lot, basically everything with, with not a lot to start with, right? Um, so that's, that's what I would tell them. I would say, this is, this is a guy who's been able to figure it out. And in the history of soccer, there's not anyone there's not any one person who's combined basically every trait. I think the only trait he's probably missing is what? Defending and right foot finishing. And, you know, even headers, I mean, you'll know as a Man U fan, even there, you know, he can, he can pull it out. He can pull it out when he needs, right? So, um, yeah, so I think that's what I would say to the, to the casual observer about Messi. Messi pulling it Alvarez on the run. Alexis McAllister, Di Maria's on the far side. Here it comes, Di Maria! Okay, fifth and final goal for Kyle here. And it's the most recent one. And it's also maybe arguably the most impactful, even though, you know, this game took some twists and turns, as mm -hmm. we'll get into. Mm -hmm. I've already alluded to it, that this is from the 2022 World Cup, which obviously I think most people will know was won by Argentina to cap off, to pretty much cap off Lionel Messi's career as a world champion. But that would be very much simplifying the game that was. 
And what a game it was. I think for my money in my lifetime, by far and away the best World Cup final yeah, I remember. Absolutely. Um, when you think about the dross we had to watch between Spain and the Netherlands in 2010, um, and even you know France against uh, Croatia in 2018 mm -hmm. was pretty much never in question the outcome, even though there were some back and forth swings. But this game, Argentina three, France three, won 4-2 on penalties by Argentina is, and I think will go down as one of the all-time great games in world football. A penalty, I was going to put an adjective in there, but I'll be polite to Kyle. A penalty from Lionel Messi gave Argentina the lead after 23 minutes wow. before Angel Di Maria, who we're going to come back to in just a second, made it 2-0 after 36 minutes. And with just 10 minutes to go, it looked like Argentina were waltzing their way to a coronation before France's golden boy, Kylian Mbappe, scored a penalty to bring him back into it. And less than 60 seconds later, when cruelly Lionel Messi was robbed of the ball, leading directly to the 2-2 equaliser, an unbelievable finish from Mbappe. And it looked like maybe somehow Messi was going to have contributed to his own downfall by losing mm -hmm. the ball. Only for Messi to give Argentina back the lead three minutes into the second half of extra time. But the drama wasn't done yet. And a handball gave Kylian Mbappe the chance to complete his hat-trick with a second penalty in the 118th minute, which he duly did. And the game went to penalties. Eventually won by Argentina, which gives Kyle all the happiness he's ever asked for as an Argentinian national team fan. And... I, I was very happy for you personally, as much as uh, England's unfortunate exit was 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 a heartbreaker in and of itself. I'll put it this way, and this is this is maybe a silly thing to say, but when one of the recommended videos on YouTube is Stephen <laughs> A. Smith talking about Messi and Mbappe giving the world a treat, you know it was a big deal if first take is talking soccer in any sure, way. Sure, sure. So you know this game in itself was absolutely incredible, and we'll talk about the legacy of Messi and what this meant for Argentina as we go. But the goal that we're here to talk about specifically is the second goal of the game that makes it 2-0 to Argentina. And it is a breathtaking counter-attack, which rapidly goes from the Argentinian, Argentinian final third into the back of Hugo Lloris's net. And the less I say about Hugo Lloris, the better for everyone. The ball gets fed forward to Lionel Messi, who incredibly takes a first touch, and then flicks it with the outside of his right foot out to Julian Alvarez on the right wing. Alvarez is through ball to Alexis McAllister in space and coming in at the back post to finish it off is Angel Di Maria. We'll talk about Di Maria, the player, in just a second. But Kyle, talk to me first about <clears throat> the final on the whole and your recollections of this goal. Totally understand why selected, even though there were some ups and downs mm -hmm. in getting right, the eventual right, right. winner. But it's an unbelievable piece of football in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the goal itself is just a great counterattack, you know, just textbook, uh, beautiful goal. The, you know, the other thing I like about it is that it's kind of the, it's a perfect mix of the new blood and the old blood of Argentina. So you have, uh, you know, McAllister to Messi, Messi to Alvarez. So new to old, old to new. And then the, the final shot is taken by Di Maria, obviously of the old blood. But uh, yeah, kind of showing the new guard coming through the ranks. Um, but yeah, for me, I mean, this whole world cup, I don't know, my, like 
so I, I would get the you know the Instagram for you page of all the goals of all the uh, the chants of the Argentina fans, and I'd be watching it in my bed before sleep, and my my heart would just start pounding. I'm like, I gotta I gotta put my I gotta put my phone down. And even now, when I see this counterattack come on my Instagram feed, you know the heart my heart starts pounding right away. Um, so yeah, I mean to me, it's just one. It was obviously the two zero, and at that time, I I stopped myself from texting my friends, "Where's Mbappe?" Because I knew it was gonna come back. <laughs> I knew it was gonna come back to bite me. And I didn't send the text, and it's and it, it still happened. Um, but yeah, it's it's just a great goal. And at that time, it looked like at that time, and then for you know. 30 minutes after that, it looked like they were just on their way cruising to to the third they had to cup. Control. Yeah, absolutely. The remarkable entire game and the chaos of the last 10 minutes and extra time, I think, is what bumps this game up to such legendary status. Because, mm-hmm. like you said, I think for the majority of the game, it was fairly conclusive control for Argentina. They were the better team in the first half, as you saw by the fact that France made two very early first-half substitutions. Um, But Argentina, I think, across the tournament could very fairly point to have been amazing after the first game where they were defeated. And I guess the question is, in that first game, what what were your thoughts about the rest of the tournament as as Argentina lost a a stunner to Saudi Arabia? Yeah. Um, So I actually missed the first game. So it was a 4 a.m. start. 4 a.m. And I was like, I really should watch every game. This is Messi's last World Cup. But I was like, it's Saudi Arabia, right? (laughs) You know? Um, And I was nervous. Um, At the same time, though, I think Argentina has a history of these kinds of starts to – they're never very – what's the word? You know, convincing in the in the group stage, it takes them a while to get some ste- get some steam going. Even in the I think 2018, it took Messi brilliance against Nigeria to get them through. So it is characteristic of them for whatever reason. But I was still worried because Mexico is still Mexico, and then uh, Poland. I mean, Lewandowski can win a game by himself. You know, he just needs one or two chances. So I was nervous. I was definitely nervous. Um, but yeah, I don't know. This team had some had very good unity and the Saudi Arabia coach said it the same way. He said, you know, this team's going to win. Like those guys, not only do, like I said about the Argentinian spirit a little bit, they, no one is turning down the opportunity to play for Argentina for their country. And then on top of that, you add that they were playing for Messi. There was kind of this double willing to do anything to win. And I think you saw that in the final, you know, DePaul who at, at the beginning was very disappointing I mean, running all over, winning every tackle. So maybe the, the team wasn't as polished. Obviously, we had a bunch of kids that I'd never even heard of play before this, you know, McAllister, Enzo Fernandez and whatnot. Um, but they were able to overcome, obviously, the superstar team of, uh, of France. Before we talk about, I guess, what the World Cup meant and a little bit more on, on, on Messi and those kids, uh, I do want to talk about Angel Di Maria mm-hmm. because he is a player Here. who is for so many different reasons, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to pull up his career path here so we can just exactly kind of give him the credit that he deserves. And I say that with a little bit of a tongue in my cheek because I don't think I've ever been more disappointed that a player didn't work at Manchester United than Angel Di Maria. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was so excited when we signed him. He started with Rosario Central, we should say that before three years at Benfica, earned him a big move to Real Madrid. And he had a lot of success at Real Madrid. He's never necessarily had the best goal-scoring record. In fact, by far and away, his best record as a goal-scorer was with PSG when he scored basically one in four for them, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty good return for someone who essentially plays as a winger um, and is 
probably more often there to uh, create than score goals. You know, I think it's fair to say. But when United signed Di Maria in, in August of 2014, I was so excited and I thought, this is, you know, this is Van Gaal building a team. Like, he's, he's amazing. He'd been so good for Real Madrid. I couldn't believe they were letting him go. I don't know that maybe I should have known because the fact that Real Madrid were letting him go because he's gone on to have a fantastic career with PSG and, mm-hmm. you know, he's got 3-11 and 11 for Juventus so far. But I was absolutely gutted that it didn't work for him. There were a number of reasons. You know, I, I believe his house was broken into and there were some off-the-field issues with, with him that just didn't gel at Old Trafford. But what is your take as a somewhat neutral Argentina fan about Angel Di Maria, the person and the player and, and his career on the whole? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, understandably, it I can see why you have your opinions of Di Maria. And I think not, not only did it not work out on the field, I think his wife would say, like, you know, Manchester is the ugliest place. Yeah. You know, it's a sad place yeah. to live in. Yeah, but, uh, cold and rainy. Yeah, cold and rainy. Yeah. Which, cold and rainy. yeah. Um, so obviously not a great breakup there, but for me, I, again, it's when he plays for Argentina, it's nothing else matters, right? Like it's, he's only there to win. Um, and I think, uh, there is that sort of X factor that you can't really quantify. You know, I think Scaloni, the, the coach for Argentina in the world cup felt that he was injured in the semifinal, I think the quarterfinal as well, not risk him. And then he starts him in the final after not playing for two games and Argentina playing relatively well. But he knew that he's a he's a big game player, you know. Um, so I, I rate him. I, I like Di Maria a lot. Uh, you know, in, in 2014, he didn't get to play the final with a hamstring injury, I think. And you saw, you know, he was in tears, right, because of how much it meant. Um, so I do like him. I like Di Maria a lot. I think he's he's one of the, I think, few shifty players who actually had a good career. Because I think a lot of shifty players like him have great highlights, but maybe don't have the longevity and the, the trophies to back that up, right? But he he was a, a great winger, a great creator, um, you know, great for Real Madrid and PSG in the right environment with Messi and, you know, the click, I guess, Messi and Neymar and whatnot. He did well as well. So I, I do like him, but I understand, you know, the breakup with Manchester United. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I want to make it clear. Like, I still have my Angel Di Maria Manchester United shirt mm-hmm. in my closet downstairs. It gets worn on very rare occasions and specific occasions probably just inside the four walls of my own home. Sure, sure. But I was so excited, you know, and I think he's undeniably an incredibly skillful player. Obviously, there was a little bit of the beef when when PSG and Man United played in the Champions League a couple of years later that potentially soured things. Um, but I think he's undeniably a fantastic talent and someone that I almost wish hadn't been signed by United. Because if he hadn't been signed by United, we hadn't had that bad experience. Right, right. You know, Maybe he would be more revered by certain people in the UK and in, in Europe generally. Sure, sure. Um, we'll, we'll step away from, from the player himself because I think, obviously, this goal is hugely important to, to Argentina and, you know, in, in the context of the tournament. But really, the tournament in itself as context for the wider football sphere, Lionel Messi and Argentina as a country, I think is is incredibly important. So, the Qatar World Cup had its issues. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. We've gone over them before and we're not going to go through them all again here. And even, you know, the trophy lift where Messi was was draped in, in a garment caused some uh, controversy. But as an Argentina fan, when you look at the World Cup on the whole, do you have generally positive feelings towards the World Cup? I would assume so based on the fact that you won it. Um, but what will be your kind of underlying memories of the 22 World Cup and is it as simple as it's this goal 
or is there a kind of a wider storyline to it as well? Yeah, no, and you know, I mentioned this earlier as far as what it means to Argentina. You know, I have a lot, all my family still lives there. Uh, it's gone through a very tough time. So this was a very uplifting, you know, it's, you know, it's trite to say, I think a lot of countries are obviously going through tough times, but they needed it, right? To, to uplift the spirits a little bit of the country. Um, you know, but that aside, for me, obviously this, I think this goal like encapsulates a little bit of why, obviously we win. So like the trophies above and beyond the most important part and my best memory of it. Um, but the fact that they came in with a certain team and you had these kids, Enzo Fernandez, Alexis McAllister, Julian Alvarez, who were bench players who were coming in as just the youth, right? And they win their starting spot in the group stage. And then now obviously Enzo Fernandez, 120 million, uh, you know, you know, Brighton's getting picked apart right now. Who knows, you know, where McAllister, what his valuation ends up being. And then obviously Messi, he had, I think one of his all time. I don't know, maybe one of the best uh, World Cup performances. You know, the, the goal against Vardial, against Croatia, stands out as just classic Messi at his age, taking on probably the best young defender in the world right now. Um, so it's the way the team came together. Uh, you know, the young, the old, DePaul, just a, a soldier. A lot of the guys were just soldiers. They knew what they needed to do. Um, so it was just a great team dynamic and a good team to root for. Uh, as an Argentinian fan, I know, you know, we talked about, Obviously, Di Maria, uh, you know, Otamendi, right? Not the most likable guys outside the country, but it was just a very likable team. They were on a mission and, you know, obviously ultimately succeeded. We'll give Emmy Martinez a mention as well. Oh, of course. Um, How could I forget? How could I forget Emmy Martinez? Yeah. On the overall picture of it, you know, obviously, I think a lot of people said this World Cup solidifies Lionel Messi's legacy. Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of people also say it was already solidified. But do you feel like winning this was essential for him? Maybe in Argentina, maybe not outside Argentina, but how do you feel like winning this World Cup has changed things for Messi from, from here on? Yeah, I, I mean, I do. I think I think the World Cup is essential to having the trophy case. Um, you know, the immediate comparison is Maradona. And they have different trajectories, as I mentioned earlier, as far as who's a role model and who's not. You know, Maradona came from poor family, came from the streets, basically. Uh, rough life off the field um but he went and he took teams like napoli who were nothing to something that argentina team that he won with also not very talented it was him on his shoulders and messi on the other hand a, a bit of a silver spoon growing up uh so there was always that uh duality i guess between the two and by the way let me preface those are the only two that we're talking about for a greatest of all time um but yeah i, I think i think a world cup is important um you know, all these other players played very well, but I think he needed that. He really carried the team and he made, again, all these kids good, which was, again, I never saw Maradona play, but something that was said about him is that he carried and he made the players around him better. And so him taking a group of kids to a World Cup final, um, I think that really solidified the legacy. And I, and I do think, I think the World Cup, I think the trophy debate is important, um, but you know, it was the final piece. And just very briefly, because I think it is a very relevant, you know, topic of conversation this week with 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 things that have happened in the, in the wider football world. Enzo Fernandez and the 120 million move to Chelsea. Do you feel like that is a good move for Enzo? And am I <clears throat> am I the only one who's baffled by the price tag being yeah. what it is? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, price tags have just gotten insane. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not. 
I don't think he's 120 million. I think he's a very, very good player. Beyond that, I would have liked him see. I would have liked to see him go to a different club. You know why? One stability, coaching, uh, trajectory. Um, you know, I am a Barcelona fan. I'm not sure that was a great fit, but the club I heard early on that I would have liked him to see him go to was Liverpool. Honestly, um, obviously they're mid table right now, but I think the team or rather Klopp rather, I think would have been good for Enzo Fernandez, uh, Chelsea, new ownership, a lot of players in and out. Um, they tend to sign a lot of players, sell a lot of players, loan a lot of players. And obviously, you know, he's a big investment, 120 million. So maybe less disposable than the other players on the team. But uh, I would have liked him to see to go somewhere stable. And, and I don't want to see him flop, especially at that price tag. I think it'd be tough because I think the expectations now are, are astronomical, really, for $120 million or euros or whatever it ended up being. So, yeah, that, that's, uh, again, I just hope he doesn't flop. Last two questions, very, very quickly. A, will Lionel Messi play in MLS before the 2026 World Cup? And B, Ooh, will Lionel Messi play in the 2026 World Cup? So I actually heard, I think, yesterday, he's on for the Copa America in the U.S., which I think is maybe foreshadowing the fact that he'll come to the MLS. Um, so, yeah, yes. In short, yes, I think he'll play in the MLS. I don't think he'll play in the World Cup, though. So you think move to MLS, try and repeat as Copa America champion and then call it a day? I think so, right? Because he is, what, 35? So he'll be 39. And, and, and in, I think in a playing capacity, he won't be. Maybe they'll take him just because he's messy, right? To have him on the bench, the media stuff, although he doesn't care much about that. But if he's already here for the, for the playing in the MLS. Um, so, yeah, maybe as a symbolic in a symbolic capacity, but not in any playing capacity at 39. I don't think so. But who knows? It was messy. All right. That's Kyle's five Desert Island goals by way of a very quick recap. We started with Zinedine Zidane, Panenka for France against Italy in the 2006 World Cup final. We had Robin van Persie, the Flying Dutchman for Netherlands against Spain in the World Cup 2014 group stage. Tony Kroos for Real Madrid against Raya Vallecano, La Liga in 2014. Lionel Messi's incredible goal for Barcelona against Athletic Bilbao in the Copa del Rey final of 2015 before Angel Di Maria's goal in the champ excuse me, Champions League <clears throat> World Cup final of 2022 for Argentina against France. Kyle, it's a brilliant list. Diverse, interesting, all had a fantastic story and this has been great first and foremost. We always ask and offer people the chance to give any honourable mentions that they have and I know based on how much football you've watched in your life that there's a ton. Yeah. Sure, so sure. just very quickly, were there any that just missed out? I know earlier you mentioned free kicks. Take it away with, with your honorable mentions. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of messy goals I could have picked from. Uh, the Liverpool free kick, incredible. He had one against the U.S. Uh, and I think in the last, in the last U.S. Copa America that I thought was incredible. Um, just didn't quite crack the list. Um, I think Chicharito's first goal for Manchester United. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, just look it up. It's just, I think, it, you know, similar to the Lin Sanity area, era, it was like the Chicharito era for me. He tries to lay it in with the inside of his foot, bounces off his face, and still goes into the goal. It, I think it encapsul encapsulates Chicharito as a player, just a hustler. Uh, and that whole era, 
you know, I had his Man U and his Mexico jersey. I think that's just, it's just a comedy goal, but it's it's Chicharita. You know, How rare I think is it's a comedy funny. goal in football as well. Yeah, not yeah. not not comedy on goal, a comedy goal. A goal, yeah. Uh, but it matched his personality, I yeah. think. You know, um, and then yeah, final one. I wasn't alive for this, but the goal of the century. Obviously, I have to put it on there. Uh, Maradona <laughs> against England in Mexico goes on to win the World Cup. Uh, I wish I. You know, everything aside, right? I wish I could have watched that game in person or, you know, live on TV because it's one of the incredible moments in, in in soccer history. I'm just glad Kyle didn't put the hand of God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kyle, thank you so much for taking time. It's been wonderful. Um, a pleasure having you join us on Desert Island Goals. Yeah, no, happy to be here. Happy to share the story. Thanks for having me. Perfect. All right, guys. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen. As always, um, we've got, you know, a quarter of a century of episodes now somehow. Uh, thank you for taking the time to listen. Please continue to share with your friends and family. If you're interested in, in being a guest on the show, please get in touch. My DMs are open on, on, on social media, both Twitter and Instagram. All the links to both our profiles and, and the show itself will be in the description, as will links to all the goals, the commentary of which you've heard through this episode. We'll be back next week with another guest for more Desert Island Goals. Thanks for taking the time. Have a good week. Cheers.